Tonight we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you want to turn there in your Bible, 2 Corinthians 2. We'll pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to study tonight and um, to be encouraged by it, Lord. It's, it's an absolute miracle that Paul writes this letter, and uh, we understand that, that to receive correction, <laughs> to get correction is one thing, Lord, but to receive it is a whole other thing. And uh, we're just so thankful for the Corinthian church's ability and desire and willingness um, to hear what Paul had to say, to receive it with gladness, and to change. We pray the same for ourselves tonight, God. Have our hearts in the right place to receive what you have for us, not just to hear it, but to receive it with gladness. In Jesus' name, amen. It is. It's an absolute miracle. I was thinking about all the different ways you can teach 2 Corinthians, the the relationship between a pastor and his church, or the church and the pastor. Um, just the, how quickly a church can go liberal um, and stray from the sound doctrine that it was uh, founded upon. And how easy it is, because it is easier to go liberal. It's hard to stay conservative. It's hard to stay not strict, but disciplined in the scriptures. It's easy to let things go. It's easy to overlook things. It's easy just to not engage, you know. And that's what the Corinthian church found themselves doing as a church in their area. They had a really rough mission field. Their city was a bad city. You know, we've had bad cities before. We can probably name a few bad cities. But this was a city that I don't know that you could find even the equivalent of in America. Even New York or Chicago or any L.A. or places like that. I mean, those things have their sins and they're well embedded in those towns. But this was so open and so um, and it so permeated the, the culture, um, which we're obviously heading in that direction. But this church had a tough mission field. You know, I think about the Brooklyn Tabernacle. What a what a what an amazing church that was with Jim Cimbala and, and all and. What an amazing story that is. If you ever get a chance to read another book other than the scriptures, um, that's an excellent book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. It's an amazing story of Jim Cimbala and the Brooklyn Tabernacle. That they had a tough mission too, and it starts off that way um, in the book. The Corinthian church, you can get excited when you're first saved and you can be gung-ho, but because the scriptures tell us not to become weary and well-doing, that means we will become weary in well-doing if you're not careful, if you're not guarded, if you're not prayed up, if you're not constantly feeding yourself spiritually. You know, a lot of you are weightlifters and are, are physical fitness nuts, I'll call you, um, in a good way. Uh, I'm happy for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm praying for it to just happen naturally with me, but it's not going to because there's, there's discipline involved. And when you exercise and when you put off those calories like you do at the gym, you have to feed your body back. It needs it. Otherwise, you'll start to eat your own muscles. Your body will. Not just the fat, but everything else. It'll be just start consuming And when you're ministering, when the Corinthian church is ministering to this town and trying to maintain their own walk with Jesus Christ and witness, and their founding pastor leaves and sets up its own leadership, you can see how quickly things can go south if they don't keep themselves grounded in the word, keep themselves fed, 
because they're constantly, every day, working out spiritually. We need to do the same thing. So Paul inevitably hears about the decline of this Corinthian church and has to write that first letter to them. And who knows how they're going to receive it. More often than not, it's not received. We all know that. If anybody's ever trying to bring up a tough subject with another brother or sister in the Lord to try to lead them in a direction maybe better than the direction they're going, you know, first of all, it's a very tough step to take towards that person to begin with to make that conversation happen. But because you have gone through the scenarios in your mind, I know how this is going to be received or not received. Paul does it anyway. And he writes the letter that has to be written. He writes the letter that only love can write. And that's what he tries to get across here in 2 Corinthians. And so last week we left off in this 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul says, I know I said I was going to come and I didn't come. And a lot of the guys there that are against me in Corinth took advantage of that and said, see, he doesn't keep his word. If you can't trust him in that, you can't trust him in anything. He tries to defend himself and just simply says, I said, as the Lord wills, I said, that's my plan. And it really was my plan. I'm being honest. I'm being sincere. I'm being without wax. You remember, we talked about that. He says, but I do want to come to you and I will come to you. And I promise I want to come to you, but it's only if God wills it. There's nothing I can do about God's plan. And from a believer's standpoint, we all want to do that and say that to people. I want to, as the Lord wills, I'm going to do what I can do. But also as someone who's on the receiving end of someone's promise like that, we need to be excited for God to change their plans as he desires. Also, I'm sorry that they didn't come, but I'm so glad they're led of the spirit. Why are the Corinthians so mad if they're so spirit filled? Why wouldn't they say, hey, Paul, we're fine. We got your letter. We received it with gladness. We'll see you when you see you. You go, man. But they're not. They take advantage of it. We need to be on both sides of that thing. And that's kind of my focus today. It's only just one chapter, chapter two. But there's a lot of things that we apply. And I've noticed this. It's creeping into the church. It's kind of a wave that goes through. The church has waves like every other thing. We have a wave of pride that can go through a church, but we have a new wave going through, and it's called, it's called, well, I don't know what to call it. I'm going to name it here, probably on the spot. But it's like, I live on this island, and the whole world is falling apart, you know? And if I could just keep back the falling apart world, my island would be an oasis, a sanctuary of Jesus, you know, kind of thing. And I don't mean to be, I mean, I do mean to be exactly that, because you're just as much of the problem as anybody else out there in the world. This ivory tower doesn't exist. You know, this whole movement of removing toxicity from our lives. Define that for me, please. I just need a definition of what this toxic thing is that we're removing. Is it sinful people? Because we're in big trouble then. And to think that you're not the toxic one also in the, in the story. Well, it's kind of arrogant, you know, So for the Corinthian church to be upset that Paul didn't fulfill his promise, but did what the Lord led him to do, and they're pointing the finger at him, he could honestly, but doesn't, point the finger back and say, aren't you excited that I'm led of the Lord? And that he just changed directions, and it's okay, and I'll get to you when I get to you? You know? I saw a funny reel. I don't know where. But it was a guy walking through the airport. He goes, I don't mind people. I just don't want them near me. You know? It's hilarious. It was hilarious. And every one of us are like, yeah, I'm the same way. But that's his perspective. The guy sitting next to him could say the exact same thing about him. 
I like people. I just don't want you near me. I don't want you near You see the problem, obviously. See, as Christians, Paul and, the, and Jesus and several times in the New Testament were encouraged, don't forsake the assembling together of the brethren. Why do you think he says that? Because we desperately want to get... <laughs> I'm okay. I mean, I moved to the country for a reason, folks. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> And then the bulls try to kill me, so I don't know where to go. I don't like bulls either now. No, I love people, and I love bulls, and I love them all. They're just, we're called to be together as iron sharpens iron. There is no other way to get a sharp edge unless you grind on a surface that's going to cause sparks. That's it. I want to be sharp. I want to be ready. Now, it doesn't mean we want to be a bunch of swords sitting in the chair, but let's switch subjects now, or not subjects, let's switch um, uh, emphasis on this book and just focus on and be encouraged tonight in the fact that the Corinthian church, although all points and all signs say they would never receive a letter like this, they did. That's a miracle. That is a work of God in someone's life. When something happens to you that is so shocking Someone tells something or God's word speaks to you in some way that is so jaw-dropping in your life. And you say, and you, you grin and bear it and you swallow and say, yes, sir. That's a miracle when you actually follow through on what God showed you. And I'm excited for these guys. Paul's excited. He begins in verse 1. But I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. That's why I didn't come right away. That's why the Lord maybe led me in a different direction, didn't allow me to come when I intended to come because I wasn't so sure the letter had been received yet or not. I didn't want to show up in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful with my first letter, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? A funny way to word it. You know, Peter says, when I read Paul, it's kind of hard to understand. You can see why. Um. It's a tough step for Paul to write the letter. He didn't want to make them sorrowful, but because love dictated that he write the letter, he knew it should make them sorrowful. And the worst thing that could happen in the world is if they weren't made sorrowful by it, if they just got mad. But they didn't. They read Paul's letter and they were sorrowful, and that brought Paul joy. Why would that bring him joy? Because humility and repentance is what we're going for here. Always, always, always. When I come to somebody or you come to somebody with a problem or with a difficulty or with a misunderstanding or communication problem or whatever it may be, the hope is full fellowship, full restoration, full love. We, we should hope that way anyway. Not just, I want them to know that they wronged me. That's the world. The world will let you know all day long that you cut them off on the road. You could be singing a worship song and be oblivious to everybody, and you should be paying attention, but you didn't. And you cut them off, and boy, they'll come up next to you, and they'll make sure you know, and that's not the finger they use, and they'll point at you when you walk by, and you're like, what did I do, you know? Oops, must have made somebody mad, you know? That's the world. A believer to a believer, your hope is there's humility and that there's a repentant heart. And that brought Paul joy to find out from his, his buddy, uh, Timothy, hey, they received it. They did? No way, you know. 
Humble repentance. It's a beautiful thing. Later on in 2 Corinthians 7, he'll hit on this a lot. I don't want to steal the thunder from 2 Corinthians 7, but he talks about godly sorrow. He says that three different times in that chapter. I'm so glad there was godly sorrow. I'm so glad there was godly sorrow. You know, never heard somebody so excited about someone being sad before, but Paul, you know, because godly sorrow means that they're going to get on the right track and they're not going to, well, not going to harm themselves anymore and they're not going to harm other people anymore. They're going to be closer to God than they ever have been before. And that godly sorrow is beautiful and it produces repentance. It causes true turning away from sin. Not just sorrow, I got caught, you know, kind of thing, but godly sorrow produces repentance. And Paul is overjoyed at that. Verse 3. And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I come, or when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Paul says, I'm so glad you received it. I really want you to know the heart in which it was written. It was only from love, and it wasn't an easy letter. And I cried over it, and I sobbed over it. Came Paul crying? I don't picture him crying. I see him crippled and hobbling back in. And, you know, He's just a crotchety old man in my, in my mind a lot of times. You know, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's how I see him. He's weeping over this congregation, weeping. Oh, please. Well, because you know that a letter like this, is, it's going to go one of two ways. It's either going to cut off forever your fellowship with that group, or it's going to work. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, was instructed to write this letter. He trusted God. He wrote the letter. He sent it, <gasps> held his breath, and the Holy Spirit on the other side of this took care of it. It's a miracle. He does that. He's so excited. I just want you to know how much love I have for you. He says in uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, this is the relationship that a pastor has with his church. And Paul, who I believe is the writer of Hebrews, I believe wrote this section right here. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. I think Paul wrote that saying, doesn't that sound just like what he said to them? Look, how was I among you? Was I not... I didn't take any money from you. I, I lived my life like a Christian. I love Jesus more than, I did more work than any of the apostles, you know, kind of thing. He tries to say, my conduct reflected what I taught, you know. So you can see him writing that later on in that same chapter, chapter 13 of Hebrews in verse 17, 10 verses later, obey those who rule over you or listen to them and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Can't you see Paul's heart in that? I'm not trying to make my case for Paul writing Hebrews, although I think it makes itself. You can see that both writers, if they are different writers, are saying the exact same thing here. Oh, my joy is that you just follow the Lord and listen to good sound doctrine. That's my joy. That's my hope. I am accountable. I don't have a choice. As the one who was sent to Corinth to start this church, I have to tell you what God tells me to tell you. I don't have an option in the matter. For me to have joy out of this is for you to receive whatever God has to say to you. That's going to make me happy. And that's what he's saying there. For you to not listen to Paul, Corinth, for you to not listen to that first letter, that's not good for you. That's what Paul's concerned with. Just like when we talk about Hosea. 
Hosea, the prophet, being married to the prostitute, his, his jealousy and his grief and his sorrow is from love for her. Please, please, please don't put yourself in that position again. I don't, it's not about my feelings or my pride, the prophet would say, God would say about Israel. It's about your well-being that I'm concerned about. Paul says the same thing. Beautiful picture here. Now, um, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, um, he says this, Jesus, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Leading up to this next section. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the first letter he wrote to the Corinthian church, he addresses this difficult situation in their church where they had become um, celebratory, happy, about the fact that there was sin in their church. Not that there was sin, but the sense that they were so open to letting this sin happen. They were so tolerant. They were so accepting. They celebrated it. And Paul says, this isn't even named among the Gentiles. And this is going on in the church. And this was that a man was with his mother, physically. We believe stepmother, but it doesn't make any difference. It's the sin's the same. It's the same. And you're celebrating that fact. Even though it's contrary to God's word, you're saying you're above it and all. And it's not a good thing. And so he addresses this issue, and he's going to readdress it here, because what he told them to do in that 1 Corinthians 5 was, you need to turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Not that they be destroyed permanently, but that their flesh would be destroyed, that their spirit may live, is the idea. And so he's actually asking them, saying, you ought to put them out of the church. Of course, there's a process, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But that discipline needs to take place. You can't be proud of this. Now, here's the difference here. Because I get this question a lot as a pastor. Hey, don't you know so-and-so's doing this? And don't you know so-and-so's doing that? Shouldn't you do this? And shouldn't you do that? If I was to kick everybody out of the church that was sinning, I wouldn't be here. It's exactly good. That's exactly right. See, now I'm not proud of sin in our church at all. I'm not tolerant of sin in our church. But we're all sinners here working things out, and we're asking for forgiveness, and we're repenting, and we're keeping it between us and the Lord, and things are happening in our lives. We're slowly growing. Now, if there comes to our attention, there's a habitual sin, a sin that will not be repented of, a sin that is continuing in this person's life, and there's almost pride about it in the sense that I will not repent about this. I think it's totally normal. Then we address it, and we have. I think we've kicked out two people in the church in 20 years. I've had to do that. And the first one didn't even make it back home before he repented and said, I'm sorry, and he never even missed a Sunday, you know, kind of thing. The first one, well, is gone. They didn't repent. It's not that easy. And there's a difference between what Paul was telling them to do in 1 Corinthians 5. We don't want to become the church of the eyeball, you know. Spot and sin, sin sniffers. Smells like a sinner over there, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> no, that's not the point. That's not why we're here. Um, but we also don't want to be prideful about sin in our fellowship. 
It needs to be something that needs to be removed. But we're all in the hospital. We've all got our gowns open in the back like everybody else. We're all a little exposed. We're all in touch with the great physician, and he's all working on us. Now, maybe some of us are further along in our therapy, in our treatments, and are getting better, you know, getting closer to discharge maybe, and others just showed up. We can't be sitting there saying, your gown's open, your gown's open. Can't be doing that. That doesn't work that way. You're at the hospital. It's a good place to be. Now, if someone's running around the halls in their street clothes saying, I'm not sick. You guys are a bunch of losers. You know, kind of, well, we got an issue. Then we need some, we need to come to Jesus moment is what we need with that person. You know, that's all Paul did with 1 Corinthians 5. So come to Jesus moment for them. Look, you can't sit there and do that. It's wrong. And so they kicked the guy out. They actually did what Paul said. So he writes this next section here because the guy got kicked out and felt the sting, felt the lack of fellowship, felt that this is not okay. I'm not accepted, not by us, but in the church of God with this sin, unrepentant. It needs to go in my life. That was the whole point. The destruction of his flesh has happened. But, he says in verse 5, if anyone has caused grief... He has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, Whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan in the presence of Christ, um, lest Satan, I'm sorry, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. In other words, there's a device of unforgiveness. We don't want that in the church. It's so easy to spot sin and kick people out for sin. It's a whole other matter when, you, when you're doing it because you hope that that dies in their life and they return and get restored to full fellowship, not partial fellowship, not squinty little eyed fellowship, you know, I don't know about you kind of thing, but full fellowship, full forgiveness. Satan's devices are spot the sinners, kick them out, and leave them unforgiven. Well, that's not the gospel. That's not biblical. There's an order and there's a way to go about these things. In that chapter 5, like I said, they had accepted him. There was tolerance, and it was even celebrated what he was doing. The church was very liberal. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, tells us the process. If this needs to happen, here's how it goes. Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Step one, privately, one-on-one, Sometimes that just needs to happen even if a sin hasn't taken place. I get this feeling that you think this about me. I'm glad you came and talked to me because I don't feel that way about you at all. Well, Then how come you did this one thing this one time? I'm so sorry. I had no idea that offended you. Here's what was going on in my mind when I did that one thing this one time. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad I asked you. I'm so glad you asked me too. <sighs> Hug. You know. We need to do a lot of that in our lives. Instead of going, I'm just going to harden over. 
and I'm going to be mad, and I'm never talking to them again, and they're dead to me. We cancel each other way too quickly. Way too quickly. That's the world. You notice how the world's doing that? That's just, in the last two or three years, is canceling. It's in the church. It happens. It's crept in. Done. Since when? Since when is done? Since when does that take place? Since when does Christ ever look at us while we're still alive anyway and says, done? It doesn't happen. It's, it's, a, it's a trick. It's a, it's a device of Satan. It's one of his tactics in the church to divide. It's a trick. It's all it is. Paul says, I, I can understand. He must have got a letter from them or heard from whoever, Timothy. And they said, hey, they want this guy's repented and they don't know what to do. Remember five? They didn't have chapters when he wrote the letter. I'm just kidding. But do you remember chapter five when you told them about kicking that guy out? Well, they did and it worked. Now they don't know what to do. But they don't want to bring him back because they don't know how mad you are. That's the idea. And he's like, hey, I forgave that guy the moment you guys told me about him. If you're asking me, bring him back. Bring him back quickly. Lest he be swallowed up because the whole point of this wasn't for him to feel the vengeance of the church or the wrath of the church. It was not for him to be swallowed up with grief. It was meant to bring him to a fuller understanding of the grace of God and a closer relationship with Jesus. And it's worked. Bring him back. Oh, good. So what we were going to do is the idea behind this little section. Reaffirm your love to him. Now, right after he writes that 1 Corinthians 5 about that guy, he writes this. And this is used way too often in our liberal ideas. Not churches, but it can be in our church. It can be in any church. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought into the power of any. The idea that they're using this scripture to say, I can do anything I want to. I mean, it's not profitable, but it's not against the law, and I'm still going to heaven, and therefore justify their sin because of this verse. This is written after he tells them to kick a guy out for sin. So let's keep these things, keep this scripture in context when we read things like that. You can't just take that, put it on a plaque, sell it at Hobby Lobby, and sin to your heart's content. We've got to keep it in line with 1 Corinthians 5 and the heart of the author throughout the entire letter. The idea is, no, you can't sin. You shouldn't be able to sin and be happy. You should repent of your sin, and then you should be restored. All of us should be. We should all be going through that process. So Paul encourages them, hey, bring him back. Bring him back and love on him. I've, I've loved him. Um, I want you to love him. And, um, and you've done the right thing, and it's worked, and it's wonderful. Reaffirm, reaffirm, bring him back. Verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, Taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now, he throws that in there because he's like, I, I wanted to see Titus. I couldn't find him anywhere. Looked for him. There was no peace. Now, there was an effective ministry there, but I needed to get to Macedonia. And he's still explaining himself as to why he's not there, why he didn't show up at Corinth. I've been looking, searching. Verse 14. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Now, he's using a word picture, obviously. Here's what he's saying. When we have won, when we have victory in Christ, that fragrance of Christ is diffused. 
You've seen diffusers before. If you're a guy, you probably don't know what a diffuser is. What's that dump? Not a dump. It's a, <laughs> it's a beautiful little vase with oil in it that has scent, and they put in these sticks. Sometimes there's other ways to do it. I don't want to be corrected later on. Sticks, and the oil again kind of oozes up, and as the breeze grows across those sticks, the, the scent. It's just a little less powerful than the old Glade things we used to use. You can pop up the thing a little halt, you know, and the guys in the dorms would just pull the thing off and set it there. You get the idea. Some of you younger folks are like, what's Glade? Yeah. <laughs> if you were a kid, you used to squish it, and your mom would yell at you when you'd squish the, the gel in the inside of it. Anyway, the idea is that fragrance of Christ is infused. It, it, it's diffused. It, it blows everywhere you go. When you guys have your quiet times, when you've read the scriptures, when you've had a good prayer time, and you walk out and you're like, I don't think I felt anything that time, believe me. When I say to you, you walk out there, People can sense that you've been in the presence of Christ. They know it. Maybe you didn't, because maybe you were in the middle of it. Think of it this way. When Moses went up on top of the mountain, and he couldn't see God face to face, but he could be in his presence, sort of, there's something called the Shekinah glory of God. Not to go back too far, but when they built the tabernacle, and they made this mercy seat, and it was all finished, God came to the tabernacle, this tent that they made, and the glow, the Shekinah glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, this light filled the tent and just, you know, radiated from this tent when he showed up. Amazing. You know, wow, look at this. And a beam of light shooting up. This is, it's called the Shekinah glory. Moses up on top of the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments got that Shekinah glory just by being in his presence and was radiating that by, after being around him. He didn't have the light himself, God was the light, but because he'd been in his presence so much, sort of like a great suntan, you know, kind of thing. You've been the sun today. I have been in the sun today. You know, you're excited. I mowed today or whatever. You look all glowy. Or you're pregnant, you know, or whatever. It's, you know, I didn't mean to point at anybody. Sorry. <laughs> Some of you are saying, I'm not pregnant. I just had a lot of, you know. <laughs> no, you can tell. Well, when Moses comes down from the mountain, they're like, put a covering over your face. It was so bright. But they asked him to put a veil over his face because that Shekinah glory that God had shined on him, shone on him, it was radiating from him. Guys, that happens to us when you spend time with the Lord. People know it. They can tell. They can sense it. There's just something about them. They're more peaceful. There's something about, you know, you may not have had the greatest experience maybe that you'd hoped, oh, I really need a touch from God. I don't know. It just seemed a little dry today. You were in the presence of God. And you have that aroma of Christ coming off of you. Now, to some, he says, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Everybody's smelling us. Okay? To the one, (laughs) we are the aroma of death leading to death. To the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Now, you smell the same. But to other people, when they smell you, it is not pleasing sometimes. But to others, it is a breath of fresh air for them. Um, When I was in, this is not a great example, but an example of maybe aroma leading to death. When I was in high school, I would smoke. (gasps) Shock and awe. Imagine that. Well... It didn't bother me in the least. It was usually on a Friday or Saturday night. You can imagine why on those two nights, but not for the rest of the week. But that's kind of what we did. And so everybody in the car, everywhere you were, everybody is just kind of that thing. Now, 
And I grew up in a home where there was a lot of smoking. Just, just was. Now, I can smell it a mile away. And it causes my throat to close up. I can feel it. I'm just like, <gasps> I'm, not, I'm not judging you if you smoke. I'm not. I really am not. I mean, between caffeine and nicotine, I don't know which is worse. So I'd be calling the kettle black if I was to say, you smokers really need to stop as I chug my bang drink, you know, every morning. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm just saying that aroma, that scent is like, <gasps> can't do it. I just can't do it anymore. I used to be able to do it, but I can't anymore. So for me, that's a fragrance of death, you know, kind of thing. Um, but for others, like if you've recently been addicted and quit, you walk by the outside of any office building where they're smoking and you're just kind of, you're just kind of drawn to it. It's just, I'm going to get some secondhand smoke today, you know, kind of thing. I didn't have a cigarette. I just really shouldn't record these things. <laughs> you understand the idea though. For some people it draws, for the other people it repels. So Jesus is like a pack of smokes. No, that's not, that's not good at all. Some people really enjoy patchouli. Other people just think it smells like weed. You know, it's just not, it's not a good smell at all. Um, it's just, when you are in the presence of Christ and you have that moment with him and you're saved and you're born again and you're filled with his spirit, that is with you. Now, to some, it's offensive, and to other people, it's a, it's a total blessing. You know, It's a beautiful thing. And Paul just tells them that. That's what you do. For Rome, the Christian church was the aroma of death, and that's why the persecution took place. To the religious rulers of the day, Christians were the aroma of death. But to, for example, you know, uh, um, Priscilla and Aquila just making tents, running into Paul, a fellow tent maker. There is this aroma of Christ that they could share and fellowship. You can go to another country, not even speak the same language as somebody else, and you run into a believer, and it's like you're, you know, your brothers and sisters of another mother, you know, kind of thing. That's it. You're, you're brothers and sisters in Christ. You can smell that, and it's fellowship, and it's beautiful. There's um, Shekinah glory is one way to put it. Another one is rhema. There's rhema. It's a, it's a Greek word, and we can talk about that. But there's just this instant fellowship, like you've known each other your whole life kind of thing. Rhema. You know? And so Paul's just encouraging him in this. Now, and who is sufficient for, all the, for, this, for these things? For we are not, as so many peddling the word of God. But as, but, but as of sincerity, there's that word again that we went over last week. But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. That sincerity, again, is without wax. Who's, who's sufficient for these things? Really nobody, but here we are sharing the aroma of Christ wherever we go, you know, leading people to the Lord, leading people to life. For we are not as so many peddling the word of God. We're not selling it. And what Paul's implying is, like those people in your church are doing, like right after we left, we didn't do it for gain. We weren't doing it for money. But the people that followed behind us, these Judaizers who are taking big paychecks for the speaking fees, they're peddling it. And what a dangerous position to find yourself in when God shows up and said, did you really sell the word of God? Did you really sell it? You know, well, easy money. Not us. We came with sincerity. Paul was saved 
on the road to Damascus. He's absolutely born again, believing, loving Jesus with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and could not shut up about it. That's it. It's very simple. How come Paul's ministry was so effective? He just could not stop talking about Jesus. Wherever he went, he talked about Jesus, and it got him beat a lot of times. But it also got a lot of people saved, and a lot of churches started. It was with sincerity. That's all that matters in the ministry. That's all that matters. Not, I better take that back. That's not all that matters. Sound doctrine matters. If I sincerely believe something and I'm wrong, it doesn't do anybody any good at all. So let me correct myself. Paul's sincerity of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, is all that matters. That's what I mean. Okay? When you're ministering, I don't know if I say things right. I don't know if I have a speech impediment. I hate talking in front of people. I get nervous. I don't feel like, you know, whatever it is that you feel, your shortcomings, your sincerity and what Christ has done for you, what the gospel has done in your life is plenty. It's plenty for God to use. That's all he needs. Just don't lose that sincerity in the gospel. But as from God, we speak in the sight of God and Christ. They understand that they're not scrutinized by Christ, but they'll be held accountable. That God is listening to every word we say. Paul says about himself, but also what they say, those that are peddling the gospel, he's listening to them too, and they'll be held accountable for that. You know, And that's where we leave off tonight. One final thing. Um, well, I've got a lot of final things, but I don't want to do a lot of final things. I think it spoke for itself. Um, I guess it's back to the ivory tower thing and the island thing. I just don't want to leave without, and I'm not, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to be a downer. I just want to be careful that when we leave this, that we understand what it is that we're called to do as Christians. We're called to do what happened here in this chapter. We're called to be sincere in our faith. We're called to love somebody so much that we can't keep quiet about sin, that we can't keep quiet about Jesus. And we're not called to remove ourselves from each other's presence. We're called to interact and to engage each other like Paul does. He could have easily not written the letter. He could have easily just gone on to the next church. Let's just go to Ephesus. Let's just go to Galatia. Let's just go to anywhere but Corinth. I mean, they're gone. He just doesn't do that. He can't let it alone. I think that's very important that we have that kind of heart for one another. Not only in our fellowship, but in other, other people, other believers all over the world. I don't just write them off. Ah, false doctrine, they're gone. No, let's talk to them about it. You know, Let's show them some scripture here. Um, I love apologists that can do that, that don't just um, defend the gospel and win the argument, but they try to help that person understand where they're wrong and how they can come closer to Christ. You know, that's a true apologist. There's a point to apologetics. It's not just to win. We don't need to do that. We've already won. Christ is the winner. Truth is truth. But to win souls and to win hearts and to change minds, that's what a true apologist does. And so we're called to that. And that's where we leave off tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's love for this church who did not love him. And yet in the end, because he was faithful to obey you, to write the hard letter, you worked on the other end and they received the hard letter. And he wrote it in such a way that they knew that it was from love. And now they have this full fellowship again like they should. They're restored. They're brought back together. It didn't just divide. It brought together. And so we thank you for that. We thank you 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And we can see you working here by your spirit, being a beautiful peacemaker. We're so glad. Lord, help us to trust your truth, to be sincere in our love for other people, and to know that that is the formula by which you can restore and build relationships and bring people closer to you and to teach, to just simply teach. We love you, God. Bless these folks as they go tonight. Bless them on their trip home. Keep them safe on the roads. And uh, we pray for many opportunities this week in our own little spheres of influence, the people that are around us, the accidental encounters with people, Lord, that we would see and hear what your Holy Spirit would have us do in every one of those encounters and that we would be faithful witnesses, faithful testifiers of what you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Uh, Carolyn Miller will be over here praying with the ladies if they want private prayer, and then some other guys will be over here praying also.